Welcome to episode 74 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Brittany Lombas. And we are recording in 7th Ward, New Orleans. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Yes. We've been doing like uh, year-end wrap-up episodes, like doing our best of 2018 stuff and kind of closing out last year. And today we're going to be doing more of that later. Yes. 2018, the year that will never die. <laughs> right. We're just going to keep talking about it forever. <laughs> Let's keep it alive. But... Because of that, it's been a while since I've asked you what you've been watching lately. Uh, what have you been watching lately? The most recent uh, movie that I watched is Glass. Ah. Right. So this is my first 2019 theater film. And I saw it in like a Dolby Digital, which I'm loving at so much. Like if I'm going to like go to the movies to watch a movie, like I will shell out the couple extra bucks to like sit in a cool reclining chair. Is that the kind of chair that rumbles when it yes. gets really loud? It's super funny. Yeah. Um, so it's cool seeing a glass in that uh, style. But yeah, so glass is pretty much Unbreakable, which is M. Night Shyamalan's like 2000 kind of superhero, weird superhero movie. It meets Split, where David Dunn, who's Bruce Willis's character, him and his son, Joseph, please, I believe his name's Joseph, and it's the same kid from Unbreakable, but grown up oh wow yeah how fun <laughs> 18 is that? years later Jesus. yeah they even have like flashback scenes where it's really dark and it's like young bruce willis's face and like a little you know little kid joseph super funny but yeah they um work at a home security store but at the same time they're like tracking like criminals to like fight crime and there's four teenage girls missing so that's like one of their like goals is to find out where these girls are and rescue them well david's power is like he can kind of touch people and like see shit when he touches them and he sees an image of like these girls trapped in like a brick masonry building where they're being held captive by james mcavoy's character james mcavoy's character which it's hard to like for his character's name Kevin Wendell Crumb is like his name, but then he's also known as the Horde. And the Beast. And the Beast, because the Horde is like all his personalities. And then the Beast is like this animalistic being that he becomes. He's keeping these girls captive. And then it's sort of like, you know, bad guy meets good guy fight. That happens almost like instantly in the beginning. So it's obvious like something else is going to happen. This is just not going to like be this fight's over with and, you know, good guy wins, bad guy dies. So they start fighting. And I should mention that David Dunn is known as the overseer by the public. So that's kind of like his superhero name. Um, So they kind of start fighting and they both get caught because David's weakness is water (laughs) and flashing lights cause Kevin to... Switch personalities. Like, switch personalities, yeah. So they get caught, and they get taken to this mental facility where they're studied by Sarah Paulson. She's, like, this doctor who specializes in... I don't even think they name the disorder, but she's like, "Um, it's a disorder that you have where you think you're a superhero. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what she specializes in. And at that facility is... Mr. Glass? Mr. Glass, who's... um, Samuel L. Jackson. I'm not remembering any names right now. It's a fun trivia game for me. Oh my, yes. You're so good at it. I'm like, who are all these people? And I just saw the movie. So he's there and he's kind of like a vegetable. They just like keep kind of sedating him to keep 
him under control. So they're all there at this facility and they're all being studied because they think they're, they have superpowers. So she sort of convinces them that there is scientific evidence that supports everything that's going on with them, but they don't have superpowers. So eventually this kind of leads to a showdown where Mr. Glass manipulates the beast and gets the beast to come out and is like, you need to like show the world what you're made of and that you really do have superpowers and you need to fight the overseer for the whole world to see. So he like kind of tries to control them and like set them up to fight each other. And then that's like kind of the end of the film is this huge like showdown between the two of them. Very and it, comic booky climax. Very comic booky, but it ends in a really weird way, which I think the ending's a good twist like i didn't expect it well, so don't give that away <laughs> i'm not gonna give that away at all i think it's worth watching to find out but i really liked it because it was kind of like a, a realistic superhero movie like nobody had like weird spandex costumes on it felt like it could really happen <laughs> and i know that sounds like stupid but it's just kind of like you know bruce willis is like bending steel and fucking throwing dudes and to steel doors until like they make their little indentions and it's really, it's good. I liked it. Split was one of our like favorite movies of 2016 as a website. Mm-hmm. Or was it 2017? It's like, yeah, it was a couple years ago. And then, I mean, it's a pretty rapid turnaround. Uh-huh. And it's kind of cool that he's like making these weird ass superhero movies like, like on it. a budget. Like mm-hmm. those uh, Marvel movies cost like hundreds of millions of dollars and he's doing it for like a fifth of that. And I don't like Marvel movies that yeah. much. Um, like I can't remember the last time I've seen one because I'm so bored with them. So this is like, I think like this is the kind of superhero movie that I like where it's just kind of like, it's more on level with like Sin City and the Watchmen kind of shit where it's just kind of like gritty dudes that are super strong yeah. <laughs> fighting each other. I don't know. Well, it's the, cool. The funny thing about Split too is like that one was like a surprise that it was a superhero movie. Like that was the twist at the end was that it was related to Unbreakable. <laughs> right. Which I haven't thought about <laughs> since it was like a blockbuster rental. Like, And Anya Taylor-Joy comes back. She's back in this movie. Yeah. I love her. There's, And I think that's what a lot of people didn't like about it. They were like, wow, there's so many like sub stories within the story. There's too much shit going on. I can't pay attention to anything. And normally I'm not a person that likes that kind of stuff. I'm like, I don't know what's happening. Like, stop <laughs> confusing me. But I liked it. It was very. It kept me on my toes the whole time. Where you, you haven't seen Unbreakable recently, right? It's been a very long time, and it was easy to keep up. Yeah, because what they do is, I think like he knew that people um, needed a refresher <laughs> <laughs> on Unbreakable because he kind of he does a lot of flashbacks to like the train, the train crash, and all that kind of stuff, and like him and his son. And they talk a lot about the origins of his powers and things like that. Also, like the lower end of the target demographic, like teenagers to 30-somethings, right. would have been not even born when that movie came that's out. That's true. So, yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. I, I needed a refresher on it. So, that was kind of <laughs> nice. And and I think, like, even if you if you didn't see Split, I think that you would... It still works still, on its own. Yeah, exactly. Like, cool. I don't think it's necessary to see the first two. I think it's really helpful if you do. But, I mean, if you I'm can't watch both it. before you go to theaters, I would just fucking go watch it and then watch the other two. It's good. I really, really liked it. And there is, I don't know, he kind of, well, Mr. Glass, which is so fucking funny. He kind of has his own outfit where he's in his wheelchair and he has like this kind of disorder where his bones are like paper thin. So you just got to like kind of pishnick him and 
he'll like fall over and break in half. Um, but he puts on, he looks like Prince. Oh, he's got this like purple it's like sheen. This purple yeah. rain suit and with this high collar, and it's so cool. Something I did kind of want to mention about that is I can't think of the woman who plays his mother, but there's someone who plays his mother in this movie, and she's a young actress. Yeah, she's like younger than Samuel Jackson. <laughs> so they make her look like she's 90. And I'm like, there must have been a lot of other elderly African American women you could have chosen. Yeah, that's bizarre. For this role, because like there were so many close-ups of like everyone's faces where you can see like all their pores and it was just crazy so whenever they had like her really close up i was kind of like wow (laughs) that's a lot of weird prosthetics on your face which speaking of close-ups i'm just like trailing off right now but this is the last thing i want to mention because it made me feel good about myself so anya teller joy is gorgeous and they zoom in on her face so much that like she has all those like little like dots under her eyes that everybody else has so i felt like oh i'm normal yeah (laughs) (laughs) I kind of like let out a gasp. I was like, huh, wow. She's still like a teenager too. (laughs) Yeah. And I I like her. She was really good in here. I like her a lot. Um, But yeah, Glass was super good. I might go see it again, depending on, I would like to see it. Like if it goes to Britannia or something or somewhere closer. I saw one 2019 movie too. Oh. I saw Escape Room. Whoa, what's Did that? Did you see the trailer for that? No. It's what exactly what it sounds like. It's like a cheap thriller <laughs> about that, escape like rooms. That's the hot thing right now is like, let's go do an escape room this weekend. I'm like, holy shit, no. <laughs> see, I feel like that was the hot thing like five to ten years ago was like escape really? rooms. I, I just, I didn't find out about it until like last year. <laughs> I didn't know what everybody was talking about. There's one right by my job, like where I park every day. I pass mm. it up. It's like escape my room. There's always like signs pointing. It's like, no, no I'm, I'm not going to pay to have yeah. an anxiety attack. So it's this like really cheap thriller set in one of those, but it's this like, you know, it's an escape room, but for real. Oh God. So all these like contestants get cornered (laughs) in this room to like win $10,000 or whatever if they solve the puzzle. Uh And it turns out that the traps that they're in are actually real. So like one room is like an oven and then they escape that. And the next room is like a frozen tundra and they keep pushing and pushing it to where it's like impossible like the movie gets to this like global scale where like the whole world is like almost an escape room that they can't get out of oh my god uh it's so fun we still want to throw up it's really fun okay uh who's in it are there any like um, big names no it's like (laughs) such a generic like early january trash like just trashy horror movies just to get people into theaters on a friday night exactly i love that kind of stuff though and it was really (laughs) fun too like they introduce the characters super quickly. So they're all these like really broad archetypes. Like there's a business dick and like (laughs) this like really meek college girl and um, like an ex-military lady and like a super nerd who loves escape rooms and they throw them in the waiting room before they realize they're actually in the escape room already. They're kind of like chit chatting. Is it like televised or something? No, but there are people watching on the security cameras and you know, they have to, solve the mystery of who locked them in these like death defying situations and why they were chosen and stuff like that. And that shit really doesn't matter. Like it's more about the thrills of like, okay, how are they going to get out of this oven? Uh, How are they going to solve this puzzle to not fall through the giant like death traps in the floor? I want to know how they get out of the oven the most. You have to see it. But I have to watch it. It's actually like super fun. But yeah, when they're like waiting in the (laughs) room before they realize that they're actually going to die, the business dick makes fun of the nerd who loves escape rooms. He's like, yeah, you're a virginal nerd and your excitement is dorky and lame. 
So I like the idea that they're like making fun of the fact that they're even making the escape room movie in the first place. <laughs> Sounds like the business dick dies early. You know what? He does not. Weird. He survives longer than you would think. Because <laughs> uh, he's like kind of, you know, he's kind of the asshole. They need him to be like almost like a villain for a while. Gotcha. You don't want to get rid of him first. Right. But it's a movie that knows how goofy it is. Like it acknowledges at first, like, okay, this is a really dorky subject to tackle uh-huh. for a film. And then once it sets all that stuff up, it just sort of like powers through and like makes the most out of each ridiculous, impossible escape room situation where like each room they escape is into another escape room. Then they oh have to solve another puzzle. And it seems like they'll never make their way out until there's like this global conspiracy. <laughs> Jesus. This it's is... really fun. Okay. Now here's my fear with this movie. Like what if now escape rooms are like, we're going to be the escape room, escape room. So you don't know, like the point of the escape room is to make you feel like you're in like a escape room that's a real escape room, but all the time, all the time it's like a fake escape room, but you're not supposed to feel that. I think that's like the point. Yeah. It's like putting the real panic in those like, usually they're like in zombie evasion room or, you know, World War II bunker. It was like, find the key, but solve all the clues. It's like that, but they usually have a narrative to it about like the world outside and why you're locked in the room and stuff. Okay. This like the characters don't matter. The, like, greater mystery doesn't really matter. It's all about these, like, in-the-minute thrills of, like, how they're going to solve the puzzle to survive another five minutes. And it's really fun. It's, like, a gloriously stupid movie. Okay. I really like that movie um, (laughs) Truth or Dare last year. That was, like, The Haunted Truth or Dare Which I still haven't seen. Which I wanted to ask you about this. So on Netflix, there's a movie called Truth or Dare that Mm -hmm. isn't the Truth or Dare movie in theaters. So there's another movie. And there's another movie called Escape Room from 2016. Oh, my God. It's like an escape room horror movie. <laughs> so these are like very generic, like, wow. uh, you know, premises. It's going to be like its own genre, like escape room movies or truth <laughs> or dare movies. With the same titles. With the same titles. Yeah. So it's going to be like 20, but you don't know which is which. But I was very satisfied with <laughs> cool. Escape Room 2019. Like, okay. it was a really fun, like, trashy early January release. And I really like this time of year when, like, we get stuff like Escape Room and Glass at the same time that, like, you know, Roma and if Beale Street could talk <laughs> and Shoplifters, like, all these, like, Oscar contenders are finally mm-hmm. getting to the city from, like, you know, New York and L.A. where they've been right. playing, like, since December. So we get this, like, good overlap of, like, really trashy genre films and, like, highfalutin mm-hmm. Oscar contenders. Aren't we blessed? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's, like, the best time of the year. Awesome. <laughs> what else have you been watching lately? So another, it's actually a new movie. It's a Netflix movie about the Fire Festival from 2017. Oh, yeah. um, and it's called Fire, the Greatest Party That Never Happened. And it's so funny because, so Netflix came out with this, like, documentary about how this shitty festival became a shitty festival. And at the same time, Hulu released their own. Yeah. And they got an interview with like the guy who created it. And Netflix was like, oh, we don't want to do that because I don't know why they didn't decide. Because they didn't want to pay him for access and stuff because you're like rewarding him. Because he's a super shit person. But the Netflix one is promoted by this like group called Fuck Jerry Uh that also promoted the fire festival. (laughs) So, like, Hulu was, uh, the Hulu documentary people were firing shots back. Like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, we, we may have paid this guy for, you know, access to his archives and for an interview, but you're also produced by the same company that, that did the social media over. stuff for okay. Fire Festival. I didn't know that. So, they're both, like, firing shots. Uh, <laughs> so, I can't wait to see the Hulu one, yeah. but to compare them both. But I've only seen the Netflix one. So, the Fire Festival was probably, like, the funniest thing, I think, that happened in 2017, where... Ja Rule, like the Ja Rule, and this guy named Billy McFarlane, who's like this millennial 
Bill Gates entrepreneur wannabe kind of guy. Just, you know. The Martin Screlly type. Yes. They're they're fucking everywhere. Just a super douche. Well, he, he and Ja Rule get together and they're like, what if we make this festival on a private island? And like, it's like covered in cool models with like music and people can just come and like live this like dream of being a celebrity. It was like an Instagram opportunity, right? Like, yes. Come they... make the best Instagram post of the year at this like festival <laughs> in the Bahamas. Yes. Come get like your selfie just to show you were here. It's, it's so stupid, but it's funny because it got sold out because people are stupid. So what happened was the document and then, well, I guess I'm not going to talk about the documentary yet. So anyways, so this, you know, all this like marketing shit's all over with like, you know, Kendall Jenner, um, Bella Hadid, and they're all like, oh, come to Firefest and be like us. <laughs> and then people go to this fire Festival and it's like a war zone. Like they get there and what's supposed to be this luxurious private island that Pablo Escobar once owned is like a plot of land that's like around a sandals resort <laughs> and there's a bunch of tents set up that were supposed to be like luxury tents and they're like hurricane tents with like blow up beds in it that are soaking wet from the rain and the food that people got <laughs> like were like a piece of white bread with some cheese on it yeah it's horrible looking and it's so funny because like to me i'm like wow this is great because i mean the i hate being this judgmental but someone who's gonna spend like tens of thousands of dollars to go to a festival probably deserved to it. see Ja Rule <laughs> and take some Instagram posts. And it's so funny. Cause like the lineup, the only person that I was familiar with was like blink 182. And I'm like, you're going to spend, <laughs> you know, like 20,000 bucks to go to like this private Island to see blink 182 and a bunch of like, what is that called? Like that influencers or like uh, no, DJs? like that Skrillex type music yeah like dubstep D- and EDM EDM like EDM music and like it's just so it was so weird but none of the musical actually ever showed up right? <laughs> because they realized it was a scam <laughs> so what this documentary does like it's got all the footage of like what happened behind the scenes and how did like something that was supposed to be so like insanely amazing turn into like a shit storm so it kind of follows it and essentially like Ja Rule and this Billy guy millennial Billy or whatever they just spent all their money on promoting this and paying influencers like $200,000 to like hey post a picture of Firefest on your Instagram hashtag Firefestival <laughs> here's 200,000 bucks so they just kept spending money and they were partying with these models and they just were so shitty at actually planning this and like, you know, figuring out how much everything's going to cost and like how much time they need to where they kind of just ignored it. And this guy, Billy, just kept telling, you know, he was getting more and more investors by lying to them. So he was getting like millions of dollars that he was like wasting by telling people that like, you know, oh, like people have already invested all this money in this and here's how, what you're going to profit. And he's just really good at scamming people. And I laughed so much because there was one part where they were interviewing like people who are working on their team to make this festival a thing. And this guy's like, yeah, Billy got like, you know, anytime like it was becoming like a really big shit show and he'd get frustrated, he would just get on an RV and just speed through the beach <laughs> to take out his aggression. <laughs> Wow. I thought that was so funny and it was real. Was the documentary like well made? I think it was. Like they interviewed like all these people who worked on their team and they were like, we like work 24 hours a day and they just kind of talked about how like 
they saw it for what it was and like nobody none of the higher up people would listen to them and take their input so it's kind of like you know this elitism where oh you don't know anything you're the lowly person that's just like doing our social media who's just doing our marketing and a lot of people ended up like not getting paid so he not only scammed like all these like rich idiots but like working class people who like, he fucked over yeah. these people who were like who were so dedicated to making this successful. See, it seems like the Hulu one, what they have is like access. So like they talk to that Billy yeah. McFarlane guy. Yes. And then the and they like got archival footage from him as well. Mm -hmm. And it seems like what the Netflix one has is like craft. Like the guy who directed it also directed American Movie, which is like a classic documentary about these like backyard filmmakers. And he's made some other really good docs over the years. So it seems like I don't know. I I would like to do an episode maybe where we compare and contrast them. That'd be really cool because I really liked it. And what's cool about these documentaries coming out? There's a woman who. So they ended up not being able to use the Pablo Escobar Island because the one rule <laughs> that they had was like, don't market it as Pablo Escobar's island. And they did it. So of then course. they couldn't use it because they didn't fucking listen. So then they had to go to some they other. They should have called it El Chapo Island or something. <laughs> yeah. Like we didn't say it. But then they went to this other island in the Bahamas by the Sandals Resort. And there's a woman who owned a restaurant down there and what they did when people were coming in they didn't have any fucking tents set up so they were like oh part of the experience is the bus is going to take you to this island where you can like just party until like everything's ready so they went to this like restaurant ate a bunch of food people were literally pouring like tequila in everyone's mouth be like maybe if we get them drunk enough like they won't realize how shitty it is right so this woman who owned the restaurant who was like a native of this island they didn't get paid so like she lost so much and it's just really sad and they interviewed her like seeing this like you know working class woman who just got fucking like used and abused and they someone made like a i don't know i guess maybe like a like a gofundme type thing and like people are actually raising money to pay this woman back and she's they have almost sixty thousand dollars that just kind of ruined the short infrared of it where like you can't feel that great about all these rich kids getting ripped off if there were other people who got caught in the same scam exactly yeah so i thought that was a kind of nice thing that came out of this and it's kind of we're in a time where documentaries like mean something like oh yeah for look sure. at the like r kelly um you know surviving r kelly shit he got dropped by his label and now he's getting fucking investigated and all these people are pulling their r kelly tunes from their like yes. collaborations from itunes so it's like it's doing something so now this woman who probably was like i'm never gonna get paid for this i'm gonna have to deal with it she's gonna maybe she'll make more than what she would have made in the first place so it's kind of like really nice seeing all this you know there's some goodness in the world i guess can i tell you what i pitched on twitter the other day what no one, no one looks at our twitter so <laughs> this is like fresh information a society sequel uh set on at the fire festival <laughs> where like the rich kids they lure, all shunt together yeah they all lure these like working class people to like sell food and like be vendors and then shunt them and then something goes wrong so they have to fake uh the fire festival disaster on instagram to like see all this horrible stuff that happened to like it's cover up the, the shunt so that can go right that's awesome but that it seems so like it was like a horror movie like not like the festival falling apart but the fact that like people were paying to go here that's what disturbed me the most like there was some guy who when they were running out of money billy's like oh what if like we start selling wristbands and people could put money on it and they can get like boat rides and food and stuff and someone like got a wristband and put like 700 grand on it or something and i'm like gross yeah so gross 
I think there will be like a thinly veiled like fire fest horror movie, kind of like an that escape would be room really cool. movie or like <laughs> some other fad, you know. So yeah, and it's so funny because it kind of pokes fun at like the festival culture, mm-hmm. which is like a huge thing now where people like spend so much money to see like I don't know. Like Coachella. Yeah, like Coachella's and Bonnaroo's and things like that, which I think is like, it's hilarious. Yeah. I think we should do like the uh, <laughs> the two docs as like an episode. Yeah, that'd, that'd be, be fucking awesome. Yeah. I would love that. So that's pretty much like the, what I've been watching as of late. But what about you? Any other so besides escape room, escape room <laughs> another like big happening that happened on like Netflix a few weeks ago between Christmas and New Year's was everyone was watching Bird Box. There was also a conspiracy. I was one of those people. You watched it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, there's also a conspiracy that not that many people were actually watching it and that Netflix had this like marketing campaign on like Twitter and Instagram. And BuzzFeed. Where they posted like yeah. fake memes on these like fake accounts oh. to like I was living for the BuzzFeed up. memes though. Yeah. I got caught in that trap. I didn't actually watch Bird Box <laughs> yet. I think I will. I'll, I'll probably watch it soon. But it did inspire me to pull a DVD off the shelf that I had bought months ago that I hadn't actually gotten to Aww. yet from the thrift store, Ooh. which was another Sandra Bullock thriller called The Net from 1995. Ooh. I talk a lot about on this show how much I love evil internet horror films and like films about how you know the internet is trying to kill us all. Uh, and The Net feels like one of the first like big ones, uh, like from when the internet started getting into people's homes from like AOL online, America Online, and stuff like that. It's Sandra Bullock in the most unconvincing version of her shtick which is you know the sweetheart next door even though she's like a beautiful famous movie star they try to pass her off as like an everyday normal person yeah miss congeniality exactly (laughs) uh in this one she is this dumpy internet hacker who has no friends and spends all her time like (laughs) online in these chat rooms and her hair is in a ponytail the whole time right yeah it's not (laughs) believable at all it's completely unconvincing and she gets caught in this like conspiracy about a floppy disk she becomes comes in possession of it's like this internet virus that's this like international cyber terror in a floppy disk so real quick whenever we first got our like family computer we didn't know how to use a floppy disk so i cracked open the plastic what? and got the disk in the middle and i shoved it in i was like i guess i'll read it now Fuck. so that's <laughs> every time i think of floppy disk i think of how i almost broke our computer it reminds me of those early pictures of people using uh cd trays as like uh coasters <laughs> just kind of breaking them so she gets chased around the world uh or los angeles at least uh by this like international conspiracy to like get this floppy disk back from her yes and the thing that makes her vulnerable is that she lives her entire life online so no one can confirm her identity because she has no friends the only person in the world who really knows who she is in the flesh or irl as the movie likes to say is her mother who has dementia so she can't be trusted and then um (laughs) also because we live in 1995, we live in an increasing world where, like, our records of property ownership and, you know, driver's license and criminal records and stuff were starting to become, you know, database dependent. Yeah. So these hackers can easily change your information. And they make her from, like, you know, a freelance uh, computer programmer into a, you know, sex worker who's wanted by the law. Oh, my God. And it's this really fun international thriller network based on... 90s conceptions of how the internet works and what can be hacked and like how vulnerable our bank accounts are now that there's like digital information instead of you know actual like gold backing it up in uh vaults 
it's a really fun, trashy 90s thriller. <laughs> it's not exceptionally well made or anything, but it's a good snapshot of like 90s misunderstandings of like I love how the internet that. works. Like I we should, you know what? We should do an episode on like Y2K movies. Oh hell yeah. That'd be fun. I love like all the movies that came out like between like when the internet became popular to like Y2K was supposed to happen. Like those are so funny. I feel like we did one for movie of the month, um, mm-hmm. that last night movie. Last night. It was like a Canadian thriller with Sandra O oh in it. Um, oh. It wasn't about, I about computers, that movie. but it was about like the end of the world. Yeah. It was very Y two K. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'd like to look into that subject That'd more. Be funny. I love cyber thrillers yeah. like, about the evil on the internet. That's like one of my favorite <laughs> cinematic topics. Uh, There's still a lot of like old people that I know that are like, oh, let me guess, you found that on the internet? Right. Like, the internet's, like, this big... And they're the ones that pass around, like, emails about, like, fake news and shit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Or it's like, um, tomorrow night, Mars is gonna be the size of the moon. (laughs) (laughs) You sure about that? (laughs) Yeah. They, like, pass out that kind of shit. It's so funny. I love that, though. Jesse Bird Box... I yes think, or no? I Quick think you answer. Should. Okay. Yeah, it was so funny because like there was a coworker of mine who like doesn't really talk to me that much, and but she knows I like movies, and she came up to me and she's like, "You saw Bird Box yet?" And I was like, "Whoa, you're talking to me." That's <laughs> the weirdest thing about Bird Box, and why I kind of believe the like fake memes theory is like every person who does not care about movies suddenly cared about that movie for like 72 hours. Yes, it was so like it was like a viral movie. Yeah. Um. It's like a silly sci-fi movie. I think you should watch it. I'll you watch probably it. like it. Yeah. I'm, I'm interested. Well, we are going to talk about other movies that came out in 2018 today as well. Yes. Uh, we did our best of the year episode as a podcast last episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, our Swamp Flicks best movies of the year list is going to be dropping around the same time this goes up. So this will be like the final cap on the year. This like honorable mentions yeah. episode we're doing. Because there were so many good movies that we just can't stop talking about. I can't them. shut my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. You want to trade confessions? No, no, no. Come on. What's the wildest thing you've ever done? Oh, I, no, I don't know. I shouldn't. You go first. Okay. Um, a few months ago, Sean and I had his TA over for um, dinner and drinks and a threesome. Was Sean jealous of him? Did I say it was a him? It's very cool, sis. Very cool. You okay? Yeah. I don't mean to freak you out. Hello? I'm not freaked out, baby. You're freaked out. Okay. Because I'm not freaked out. I'm cool. I'm lazy, fair. So last episode, we talked about our favorite movies of the year. And we started off asking, like, what's the movie you regret not having seen before we did this list? Mm-hmm. And your answer was A Simple Favor, yes. directed by Paul Fig. It just seems like it's everything I would love. Right. And I thought about that while I was watching in the theater back in the day, too. Um, <laughs> so we're going to do that for a movie of the minute. Like, we're, we're going to introduce Brittany to A Simple Favor. Yes. Uh, marketed as from the darker side of the mind of Paul Fig. Uh, <laughs> it's his first, like, kind of non-comedy in the traditional sense. What other movies has he done? Uh, he did The Heat with Sandra Bullock, okay. speaking of which. Uh, oh. He did the recent Ghostbusters. Okay. He did a bunch of Melissa McCarthy comedies. Yeah, that's who I'm like associating him with mentally. So Cool. cool and he cool. also worked on Freaks and Geeks back in the day, which is like classic TV. Oh, I love that show. So this is him branching out, though, from like the standard comedies that he usually makes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's him doing a Gone Girl type like thriller, like a mystery novel. And this actually was a novel before it was adapted. Mm-hmm. A Simple Favor stars Anna Kendrick as this, like, single mom 
and a mommy blogger. Uh, she does she does these like live YouTube videos where she you know gives tips on how to sneak zucchini into your kids' chocolate chip cookies so they don't know they're eating vegetables. Chip. Yeah. <laughs> And she tries to have this like perfect like target mom lifestyle where she wears like perfectly curated sweaters and like khaki pants yeah. and like uh, volunteers for everything at the kid's school. So she's like the super mom. And she is asked a very simple favor to watch uh, the kid of another mom at the kid's elementary school, like her kid's best friend's mom, mm-hmm. who is Blake Lively. And a completely different kind of person. She's like this like city worker who works for like a fashion magazine. And um, wears these, like, really elegant pantsuits. And, like, her wardrobe is just fucking gorgeous. It's the best. It's the best. And every personality trait Anna Kendrick doesn't have, like, the confidence and, like, the lack of self-awareness where, Mm -hmm. like, you just say what you feel and don't care what anybody thinks about it, Blake Lively has. Mm -hmm. She gives off the air of, like, high-class, martini-drinking city worker, whereas Anna Kendrick is this, like mousy suburban single mom right the movie plays out like a mystery thriller where like the further anna kendrick looks into blake lively's past and you know anytime she takes a picture of her it's like a big deal like oh i don't want my photograph on your like social media and stuff like that (laughs) it snowballs into this giant like gone girl type thriller where like blake lively disappears and leaves her kid in anna kendrick's care and anna kendrick almost starts to like single white female her where she like is taking over her lifestyle Um, and, you know, fucking her very hot husband who was also in Crazy Rich Asians last year. And all that sounds like a standard thriller, but it has a lot of the same, like, brightly lit, comedic, Paul Feig-isms to it as well. Everything that comes out of Blake Lively's mouth is, like, really funny and, like, cutting and to the point. Yeah. And Anna Kendrick's, like, darker side slowly emerging out of this, like, target mom facade uh, (laughs) starts to get more and more, like, matching her on that level to the point where they're like butting heads in this like murderous game of like chicken pretty much uh where anna kendrick is using the mommy vlog to out blake lively as this mysterious person and try to like bring her back out into the light like i know you're not dead i know you're not actually missing you're nearby come and face me and we'll have a final showdown what did you think of this movie? It's got a very weird tone. Um, I really, really, really liked it. Um, I actually loved it. I didn't really, really like it. I loved it. I thought it was so fucking funny. I laughed so much for this movie. And then, like, I was legitimately, like, on the edge of my seat for some parts where I'm like, is she really dead? And then why is she faking her death? Or what's the reason? Like, there's, it's really, um, it's like a really rich story. But I was so surprised because I am not normally, like, I don't, I didn't. I didn't care for Anna Kendrick that much. What did you know her from? Because I don't really know her Pitch that perfect. much. Oh, okay. That's fucking cup song that I hate so much. I haven't seen a single one of those movies. Eh, you're not missing much. Okay. <laughs> so she always plays a teenager. At least in the movies that I've seen her in. Like I've never seen her play an adult. So it was really weird seeing her playing like an adult mother. She's like pretty much our age, right? Yeah. Like she's in her thirties. Yeah. So she. I mean, she could be a mom. <laughs> but uh, her character was uh, pretty funny. And I loved how, like, the um, the wardrobe in this movie really told you a lot about the characters. Like, how you were kind of saying, like, she wears, like, her Target cat socks and these, like, pom-pom sweaters and really, like, basic kind of outfits and stuff like that that really reflected her personality. And Blake Lively wears these um, androgynous, like, kind of pantsuits. And she's very, like, 
you know, she's a very powerful force and she is very never confident. Looked better. I loved it so much. She looks so she looks better in suits than dresses for sure. Like the greatest pleasures of the movie are like watching her make these really beautiful martinis while dressed in like these tuxedo suits, yes. and then also listening to like French pop music. <laughs> She's so cool. Yeah, with her like white marble kitchen. Yeah, I love like she had that initial suit outfit where she takes off like the white shirt underneath, and it's just like this suit vest. With, like, nothing under it. Like, it looks so cool. But and as, like, Anna Kendrick starts to become more confident and, like, less of, like, a bumbling kind of, you know, vlog mom, she starts to, like, dress more like her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so clothes have a lot to do with this movie, um, which I really thought was cool. I always thought that, like, the mommy food vlog shit was so, like, ridiculous. This, like, it's, like, this weird subculture. And I love how they, like, kind of played off of that and made fun of it. Usually the mommy vloggers and stuff, the whole Mm. thing is like, look how curated your life should be. This is the shining example of how you should be as a mom. Be me. And the more you learn about her character, the more you learn that like, she has a dark past that matches (laughs) Blake Lively's like fucked up past. If not worse. Say what she is. Cause that was the funniest thing. I don't know if I want to ruin the twist of this (laughs) movie, but it's, it's pretty dark. Blake Lively insults her and calls her a certain name (laughs) i thought that was so funny i thought that was like very unexpected like anna kendrick's like weird fucking secret in this movie is so like taboo and just super ridiculous and funny and i love that topic we cover on this show more than we should (laughs) yeah it exists way too much on here and here it is again yeah so it it was just really, really funny. And I liked how, for, at least for me, it wasn't very predictable where a lot of these movies are where you can kind of like, I know how this showdown's going to end. And you kind of like know how it's going to end. But the way it gets to that point is really surprising. But yeah, I really liked it. Thought it was freaking awesome. And I loved all that cool, like French, like cafe pop music. And I also liked how it kind of reflected some light on the, the judginess of moms on other moms. Um, which is like another reason to not have a fucking kid. So you don't have to deal with that crap. All there's like, um, Oh, what's his name? Andrew Rannells. See, I don't, Andrew Rannells. are you talking about like the bitchy other moms at the school? Yeah. He's See, I don't know him, funny. but, uh, a partner on Charla is like one of my favorite standups and she's okay. like one of his sidekicks. And she's one of them. Yeah. yeah. They're very funny, but yeah, I really, really liked it. I laughed a lot. what do you think of like the mix of like the mystery and the comedy? It felt so weird but in like a way where i was enjoying it where i'm like oh like should i be like is this serious or is it not serious but that's what made it so dark Um, that was interesting in the theater like people weren't sure if they should be laughing uh (laughs) or generally concerned (laughs) yeah but i feel like the tension made me laugh louder like i was getting into the thriller parts of it and then Blake Lively would like throw out an insult or like say something really crass just out of nowhere. And I'd get like a higher pitch laugh out of myself just like because I was not expecting it to come, you know. <laughs> she's got uh, she's got the best lines in here. This is her best role, I think. Like this is like I Blake Lively's movie. I haven't seen her movie. in anything other than Gossip Girl. Gossip Girl. I, she was in The Shallows where she fights a shark for like 90 minutes. I really like that movie. Oh, I saw the parts of that. But she's the whole thing. playing a pretty generic like horror final girl character in that film. This is yeah. something special, I think. It really shows like off. This is like her movie. Yeah, for sure. This is a Blake Lively movie for sure. Though Anna Kendrick gets more screen time, right? Yeah, but she's not as much of a powerful force as like Blake Lively is. Yeah, agreed. But yeah, I liked her a lot. And whenever like Anna Kendrick kind of starts to like take over her life, 
it's sort of like it kind of she gets swept into it where it's like her best friend you know who she had like four conversations with you know is dead and then she develops this relationship with the husband like at her funeral and then before you know it she's like moving in and like putting her clothes in the closet but she's enjoying it like there's a part where she's like tossing out all Blake Lively's high fashion shit, which I'm like, why would you do that? It's so much better than the clothes you have. Right, right. <laughs> Those are Louboutins. Um, so she throws it out and puts her stuff in. And it's like she kind of becomes a monster for a little bit where it's like, whoa, like this is your best friend. And she just died and you're screwing her husband and you're like throwing all her shit out. And you're excited you're going to live in her house and like become her. It gets super. Cre- that was the creepiest part of the movie for me. I think they do a good job of like matching them. Blake Lively seems just like she's on a whole other level at the beginning of the movie. And then Anna Kendrick slowly works her way up and like in nuance. And then they get to butt heads in the third act. Because that's like the big thing is whenever she first hangs out with Blake Lively and they have their like mom martinis, Anna Kendrick keeps apologizing. And she's like, why stop apologizing? Yeah. So then it gets to the point where Anna Kendrick's like becoming like a hard, you know, cool bitch. And she makes a comment where she's like... Hmm. not saying I'm sorry or something like that. <laughs> like she's starting to like get it. Yeah. So it's, it's good. I liked it a lot. Yeah. It's a really good genre film with a lot of good, like one liners and good jokes in the middle yeah. of it. Like, did it, like, I feel like did any kind of fashion magazine do like a spread of Blake Lively in these suits? I feel like there was a lot of hubbub over the fashion of it. Yeah. I love that. I would love to like just have a coffee table book. Of Blake Lively in suits that are in A Simple Favor. <laughs> One of my favorite things that happened last year was a Twitter post that she did where she's like, it looks like she's fucking a dude. Like he's like on his back with his legs up and she's between him, uh, his legs like enjoying a martini. Uh, and it was to promote this movie. And I was like, awesome. yeah, that's the energy I'm getting that's here. So and cool. I love it. But yeah. I love this because I love all that, those like lifetime trash, gone girl type movies. And I love dark comedy. So this was like really up my alley. And I like really hope that they make more weird fucking movies like this. Hell yeah. Please. Anyone. Everyone. I was 13, I stopped a girl. What? I was bullied at school, and this one day in class, this girl came at me, and I I can't really remember what happened, but one minute I'm holding some scissors, and the next is sticking out of her. And so, to pile on some more honorable mentions from last year, we have C.C. Chapman joining us. Hey! Hello! C.C. did not get to be on the Top Films of the Year episode last time. I had a cold. We did post your uh, Top Films of the Year on the website. Your number one was on my list as well. Actually, I think all of my movies were on your list, more or less. Um, The only difference was, like, what order they were in. Drastically different order. Yeah, very different (laughs) order, but pretty much the same movies. But your number one was pretty awesome. I was excited to see that on there. Well, thanks. My number one was Dirty Computer, just because I really love hypersaturated colors, lush cinematography, and then, you know, obviously the messaging of, you know, black girl magic and, like, queer empowerment was really cool. 
Uh, and, and the that, music was banging. Yeah, so. that Janelle Monae album just whips. Yeah, it's great. So. I still have to see that. I still haven't seen it. Oh, and it's free. It. I don't know. It's free. It's it's there and it's beautiful. Yeah, you and James like hadn't even heard so of the weird. film existing, which yeah. is very odd. Yeah. So I was just excited to see that on CC's list. There was like a huge really amount of like press around the time it came out because everyone was like, okay, we we have to know if Janelle Monet and Tessa Thompson, Tessa Thompson are dating because obviously oh, they're dating. Okay. Like I they have to be that. dating. Like, right? Like, there's a pussy like music video like where they're just like it it ha- like have to be. That's how they reveal their love to the world. Pretty much, they're very good cool. friends. But you know, I don't know if love is what I was seeing in that video or yeah. not. <laughs> <laughs> might be a different word for that. But uh, were there any other movies you would say were honorable mentions, like stuff we didn't talk about on our best of the year episode that were also on your list? Yeah, um, my number three movie was The Favorite. Uh, by Yorgos Lanthimos, and it was also a costume drama. So I don't always love his movies, um, just because he has that very cold, stilted dialogue, and obviously the subject matter and everything he's ever made is extremely dark and gross. <laughs> so, but this film was this great uh, wrestling match in a lot of ways, where it was the frippery and sumptuous costume drama. But it was also this extremely dark, adventurous uh, story, you know, examining, you know, power and aggression and desire, but it still looked really pretty. <laughs> so, yeah. Because, yeah, like, I like costume dramas more or less, but, like, I was never, yeah. like, a costume drama girl. Like, I wasn't one of the girls who watched, like, Jane Austen movies and stuff with my friends on the weekends. Yeah. Like, I always thought that was kind of, like, horse girl behavior. Um, so like there was like you know the Jane Austen girls and like the horse girls and I was just like "Eh." oh if I'm gonna read I'm gonna like get in any of those connection like like, girls who were like I love my horse like those kind of girls yeah okay yeah yeah yeah. that's so true there's also like a group of them that are like really into Jane Austen movies and I'm like but Wuthering Heights is the only one worth anything and that's a Bronte because they're so so like hateful to each other I think that's why I like it so much. I feel like we're pretty lukewarm on Yorgos Lanthimos in general. Like, we like his movies, but we're not, like, super in love with him the way James is, for instance. Yeah, I, he, I always enjoy watching his movies. And when people, like, tear his stuff down, like, I don't see why you'd make a movie like The Lobster. And if you liked that movie, you could just unfriend me now. It's like, uh, well, fuck you. Fine, I'll just unfriend you. Um, <laughs> it's got a very dark, But then at the same time, he humor, never yeah. makes it into one of my top tens. Right. Or even top fifteens. Like, usually. I think having someone else, um, a man and a woman, and I don't know their names off the top of my head, they wrote the script for this. And I think having someone else write in like a somewhat period correct voice uh, for like the 1700s this is set during like Georgian England. Well, not yet Georgian because Anne is the queen. So I don't know what the name for Annie in England was during the reign of Queen Anne. Uh, Olivia Coleman's England. Yeah, Olivia Coleman's England. Uh, so you know I think having someone else do the actual script and have him do the direction I think made it more palatable to me I think that Mm. setting too like his usual mode is like these very stilted inhuman cold line readings Mm -hmm. and that you know careful way of politically talking in the court of like you know the government in those like costume dramas actually fits that tone more than, like, his more modern settings. Mm -hmm. Like, when you're watching Colin Farrell in The Killing of a Sacred Deer talking that same way, it's like, no one talks like that. But when you're looking at these courtesans of the queen in this, like, ancient court, it fits more into the costume drama aspect to the point where you almost don't really 
recognize immediately how weird they're being and like yeah. how out of place their the, behavior uh, is. is not typical of a normal costume drama but it takes um, a minute for that to reveal itself yeah like they're very frank about sex and rape and you know stabbing people for the sake of getting what they want and you know queerness it's not that different from blake lively and a simple favor actually no yeah. honestly it's not it's people who are willing to do fucking anything to get their way and talk openly about so that. i need to see this and dirty computer probably i'd also <laughs> uh say like uh rachel vice in her um shooting range outfit when she's like shooting skeet is not that different from like lively in her tuxedos either it's just yeah, like masculine wearing, energy and, yeah she's wearing like an extremely fitted uh riding dress with a divided skirt which is essentially a pantsuit but yeah delicious like queer mean catty humor it's almost got like some drag race energy too because there's like mm-hmm. some uh voguing uh that comes out of nowhere in the middle of it yeah i was really surprised by how much i liked it versus like his other films which i appreciate but not necessarily as like much as this one this is like his best movie that i've seen so yeah. far same brandy do you have any honorable mentions that we didn't get to last time so the, it almost like made it into my top 10 but mama mia here i go again oh yeah <laughs> Not a very, very solid, like, plot, but it was a bunch of fucking fun, and I laughed so much, and I was just, like, so happy the entire time because of all the music and the singing, and everybody's so happy in this movie. And Cher's entrance gets, like, an applause. You're waiting for her the entire time. Like, every time, like, someone's, like, facing the back and they turn around, I'm like, it's her, it's her. And then finally (laughs) she, like, makes her entrance via, like, helicopter, and, like, feet first and with, then like, sings these fabulous one of shoes. Best songs. Yeah. So I thought that was cool. Um, like, Cher's big, like, reemergence to the big screen. To have her and Meryl Streep in the same movie, even if they don't share the screen, is pretty great. Yeah, they do it, like, at the end in the big, like, you know, singing extravaganza. And I thought it was so cool how, like, Cher was her mother. And, like, knowing how Cher's personality is, like, I thought that was very bold of her to take that. Because they're probably around the same age, huh? I yeah. think Cher's slightly, ever so slightly older. Right. Yeah. Two years. Like, not old enough to be her mother. <laughs> <laughs> but it was like, you know, Cher as like a sexy grandma singing yeah. in Greece. Yes. One of my favorite images of this year was them promoting this movie, like at yeah. the red carpet event, and the two of them kissed on the mouth for the cameras. Yeah, that was like... <laughs> I was like, what? That Beautiful. was my background for like the entire it. 2018 yeah. year on my phone. Like, it was just, it was so gorgeous. Also, you and I did a whole episode comparing the two movies, <laughs> yeah. and I gotta say, like, I appreciated the first one more. Like, I had not yeah. seen either of them, so that was like a new experience for me. The first one felt like really weird and off kilter and just not made right. Uh-huh. And it's super horny. Thank I you, like Christine movies... Bransky. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's yeah. the one that like totally horned that movie up. This one felt more like an American production, just a proper American production. Whereas the other one, since it was three different countries producing the film at once, they each had a little bit of their own style it's like of humor Swedish, in there. German, and American. Yeah. yeah. And it was yeah. set in Greece. British. Yeah, it yeah. was set in Greece. So like, yeah, no, there was just like too many styles of humor competing. And this one felt more like American beats and tropes that we're used to, which was fine, but... It felt technically better weird. made. Yeah. Like, it's like a better made picture, uh-huh. but, like, the weird-ass energy of the first one, like, not having that shit together, like, almost makes it, like, more fun to watch. Mm-hmm. But the new one had, like, these really elaborate, uh, choreographed dance scenes, especially to yeah. Waterloo in, like, the French restaurant. That um, was so good. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's like a lot, a lot more like elaborate stage production, and that and weird like "I Kiss the Teacher" song. Yeah, I graduation like that production. Song anyway, it was very weird. 
like I don't see why they needed to include that one. Especially like, like we know better song. now. Like it's you could have done something else. Well, <laughs> they fixed it by having it. I kissed a female teacher, and the female oh. teacher is like, "Whoa, what? Wait a minute, you didn't kiss me. What? Don't tell everyone that." <laughs> one of my favorite uh, critics, Glenn Weldon, who does the Pop Culture Happy Hour, he he had a whole um, article that was like, "This is Abba Silver as opposed to Abba Gold." It's like <laughs> the second like the B, the B songs, you know. Honestly, it was not all the greatest songs. Like, yeah, they played Fernando, they reprised Dancing Queen, mm. Mamma Mia. Um, you got to hear Pierce Brosnan sing uh, SOS again. You yeah, know? <laughs> but you did better this time. He's obviously been practicing. Yeah. So I don't know. But I did have a lot of fun in the theater, and everyone was in a really good mood. People were dancing when I went see it. It was yeah. like a lot of like mother and daughter. And then they were like dancing and singing along we to saw stuff. large groups of gay men. It Thirty was like, something oh, gay men sweet. and like middle aged moms. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. And everybody was white wine drunk. We all were going to the bar because you know we saw it at AMC where they have MacGuffins on IMAX. And so we were all like getting our like extra large white wine. Yes, watching it on our IMAX train. And it was IMAX. like, and it was an IMAX, so you had to pick your seats beforehand. So we. This is one of the nice. few times where it's acceptable to go with a group because we could all just like purchase our seats next to each other yeah. in a line. Those nice. were the final days of Movie Pass as well. It was. I did Aww. not pay for that movie. Yeah. <laughs> or no, I did pay for that because they don't cover our No, IMAX. no, we snuck it in. Oh, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. It was weird. I shouldn't have been able to use Movie Pass for that, but I think they like maybe charged me like an extra like two bucks or something. Awesome. Like yeah. Okay. Any wow. money you could squeeze on a Movie Pass was yeah. like a good deal. I scammed them so hard. <laughs> I think I paid like maybe $20 for movie pass like total over the whole time I had it. Do you still like, get what? the emails from them where no. they're still trying to get people no, to come No, because they, to- they told me they re-signed me up and I like went off Whoa. on them because for a while they re-signed everybody up who had canceled. They were trying to fire festival you. Yeah, they were trying oh. to fire festival me and I like, yes. I like was like, no, I am pursuing legal action through my credit card company. You do Damn. not charge Damn, me. No, I got, I like went, I went crazy on them. Gotcha. Um, so. Oh, well, I'm glad you had a good movie pass memory with yeah. Mamma Mia too. Yeah, I did. <laughs> but it was just, it was stupid and like fun and I love stuff like that. Yeah. So yeah, I would say that would be a good one that, a good honorable mention. I want to talk about a couple documentaries today because we didn't do any docs on the last episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, the top one on my list was this film called Flames. Uh, I discovered through 52 Films by Women, this filmmaker, Josephine Decker, last year, who kind of made a splash with Madeline's Madeline. That was a good movie. It's fucking weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. And all her movies are like that. She makes these protagonists who are like losing their minds and you're very much deeply ingrained in their brains and seeing the world through their vision. And so it's like a sensory overload, right? Mm -hmm. You can't tell what's real and what's imagined. And the further the movie goes along, the less reality makes any sense. Uh, she's made three features like that. Madeline's Madeline, Thou Was Mild and Lovely, mm. and Butter on the Latch. And they're all great and terrifying. But she also made this film called Flames last year, which did not get a lot of recognition. And I fucking loved it. And that actually might be my favorite thing she's ever done. It's got the performance art aspect of her other movies where she's documenting her own life mm-hmm. with this guy, Jeffrey Throwell, who she used to be in a relationship with. And the idea of this project was we're going to document a romantic relationship from start to end and like document our life together as a couple. And they have this very hot and heavy year where they're like very attracted to each other. The movie shows a lot of them having sex explicitly on camera. Whoa. Uh, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, a movie, it's a documentary. So you're actually seeing them having sex. They filmed it. <laughs> oh and they my asked, gosh. and people had to like come and film this. They're friends. Because yeah. Like, they needed real camera people. Thank God people. for good friends. So. 
And wow. it starts off with this really like goofball <laughs> version of sex too, where they're like trying to fuck upside down and like uh, in this like impossible configuration. They're like laughing and having fun. You get this like real sense of this couple who like just fell in love and like can't get enough of each other. You're like, yeah, no, this is definitely not going to be successful, but let's try it anyways to say we tried it. <laughs> like, I don't feel any shame around you, so whatever. They throw a dart at a map and are like, let's go on this trip together. Mm-hmm. And like anywhere this dart lands on the map, uh, we will go. And it's this really, like, isolated island off the Indian Ocean where there's, like, this U.S. military base nearby. And they try to go there, and it's kind of like a failed mission. And by the end of it, they break up. So you would think that one year would be what the movie is. Like, let's film our from, like, first falling in love to us, like, breaking up. Mm-hmm. But instead, it's this very real version of, like, a detangled romance where, like, instead of the breakup being the end of it, it's this, like, five-year hell process where like they cannot fully get out of each other's lives because they're making a movie together right like the thing you shoot one year's worth of footage and then you have like five years worth of editing to do and they had to do it together they had to sit side by side and figure out what version of events they were gonna show on screen and they don't like each other anymore but did they fall in love like rom-com style after they went through everything together? no god they hate each other so much each other so much you can just see the resentment and there's a lot of footage of them in editing rooms like piecing apart like why did we do this when it happened and there's a lot of like post breakup like couples therapy uh because they're like really into like examining their like interpersonal relationships and why things failed the way they did and it becomes this thing where like the movie itself is like a bane upon their existence (laughs) usually a documentary when you're filming a subject your presence changes the reality of what you're filming right and this is different because they're filming themselves so, like, the documentary aspect is, like, ruining their relationship because they can't tell what's genuine emotion and what's performance. Yeah, like, they're talking to a therapist afterwards about, like, why their relationship failed. And one of them will make, like, this, like, very soundbitey statement about how they're, why they thought their relationship failed. And the other one's like, I can't tell if you're being sincere because we're being filmed. I can't tell what part of our relationship, even when we were together, was real because we filmed it what is real and what is not real and like they can't tell anymore so the movie itself is a project that fucking hates its own guts and like (laughs) by the end of it the movie is trying to end and it can't end because their lives are still (laughs) detangled so by the time you get to this showdown that they have in Times square in new york where they have like the drunk elmo and like the drunk mascots that like you know spange in in the Times square area um (laughs) that's when they finally like walk away from each other for the final time and at that moment, it's like, okay, this relationship is finally cut off. So you get this very real version of, like, the start to end of a relationship. And because Josephine Decker has this camera style that, like, is very sensory and, like, locked in a POV, you see this really intimate version of it. Like, you're you're not at a distance. You're in these people's heads and living through this pain and this, you know, initial joy that turns more and more sour as the thing goes along. Um, and it's a fucking nightmare, and I love it so much. It's like a great documentary. It's called Flames, and not wow. a lot of people saw it, even though Madeline's Madeline got a lot of you know critical attention. She's just last one year. of those people who puts out so many fucking movies so quickly. Like some female directors, you know, don't get enough budget, so they make a movie every like four to eight years. 
like Lynn Ramsey, and then she's just cranking out a movie every six months sometimes. Yeah, like, she also uses no budget. It's like Madeline's a DIY Madeline was aspect. 2018, too. Yeah, yeah. No, she put out two movies in 2018. But oh, my God. One was a documentary that didn't really cost that much. Yeah. Big. It just that took a lot of time. Cool. It took six years, six at least. Six years yeah. of their lives. Uh, and then, you know, Madeline's Madeline didn't have a big budget it's at all. Like None of her nice movies have big Like other people be miserable. While you're sitting yeah. down and like you know eating snacks, but it's also so, got this like um, sounds cool freeform editing style. It's very like Tree of Life or like you know like overreaching art visual style to it. That's Whoa. very like editing room tinkering on top of you know the actual like subject of the documentary, which I found interesting in this like intimate level. Yeah, because they could have just shot it straight. Uh-huh. And like told this completely chronologically in a narrative fashion, and, and they chose not to. So like sometimes they're going back to the relationship, and like sometimes you're thrown back in the middle of that. Sometimes you're like in the therapist's office years after they've broken up, and they're like being told they need to do art collaboratively together. So they're like clipping out like a mosaic together, <laughs> and like they're just so pissed about it. And their filter starts to drop more and more, where they like say what they actually think about each other. The more they like. Chip away the artifice of it. So it gets really nasty too, and it's a really satisfying way. Yeah. Well, what else uh, made your nice. top of the year list that we didn't talk about already? So the next one I want to talk about is uh, my number seven film on my list. It was Beast. Hmm. Uh, like I mentioned before, if I'm going to like something that's kind of costume drama y, I like it to be more on the Wuthering Heights, like really miserable, dark gothic side. <laughs> Uh, And Beast, even though it is not a costume drama, it is not set in the past, it is set in the modern day, it feels very much like that Wuthering Heights, like, misery. Um, This film is set on the Isle of Jersey, off the coast of England, where there's, you know, like, the Breton people, and uh, there's this repressed young woman who lives in this semi-abusive home uh, with her family, and she falls in love with this like poacher that she meets and at first he seems kind of like a hero type who like can rescue her from this bad situation and then as it goes on he becomes more and more menacing but at the same time you're also learning more about her and how Mm -hmm. she's not a safe person to be around either she's also very dangerous and so it's like this very modern version of like the gothic romance like the doomed tragic gothic romance and it gets really violent and dark and like really just like disgusting i think wuthering heights is a good comparison point too because the attraction that's between them is like almost animalistic and like beyond social norms and no matter what their like dark energy is just like magnetized to each other and it takes them a while to reconcile like what that means and what that indicates about where their future is going yeah like they don't necessarily have a future together but they can't stop like fucking each other and like sneaking out and like doing bad things in order to be with around one another so brutal like but that's not like something you could like buy a house together and like pick up the newspaper and And it isolates them yeah like they have no interest in the outside world when they're around each other jesus and also like you said costume drama earlier and it has like a gothic literature vibe to it but it's very modern too very modern you know like there's like bullying and like internet rumors and like the 24-hour news cycle like kind of come in but yeah no it's just set I think part of it is that it's set on a small island off the coast of England and France, like in the the channel, like which it's really like, isn't updated since the '90s in any way. No, like <laughs> they might have smartphones, but that's about it. But yeah, like the clothing's relatively modern, but there's still that small town mentality where you need to know everybody. Like there can't be strangers on the island. <sighs> Who are these people? Like kind of a thing. Uh, there's like some talk about like. Uh, 
they're, they're an agricultural island like their their economy is agriculture based and so they have like migrant workers some of them from like you know foreign countries like guatemala and so like you know there's like this immigrant fear and so like a lot of the themes are very modern but it's still just because of the doomed nature of everything that's going on and the just like general dark vibe of it it just feels very costume drama very moody yeah sweet and it played at um overlook film fest last year mm-hmm. uh we caught it a little later through yeah. movie pass yeah it was one of the few things that i really wanted to see at overlook when i was reading through the program and then when i saw movie pass like pushing it really hard i was like okay well cool perfect <laughs> and i think overlook moving from the west to new orleans was like one of the bigger cinematic events for the city last mm-hmm. year and they're returning again in a few months which yeah. is exciting oh cool uh, yeah. and i saw a bunch of female directed and like female helmed like projects there uh and this had like a lot of feminine like literary energy to it uh I, yeah i was really surprised by how much i loved it and it got a bafta nomination for like breast best breast best british <laughs> film uh, which is awesome oh, cool uh, yeah. like i haven't seen a lot of critical accolades for this film it kind of slipped no. through the cracks but the baftas picked it up good i guess because the two stars are like singers in britain yeah so neither one of them sings in this film really she does a little bit she's like in a choir and her mom is the choir director i forgot about that very yeah. chilling scene but she came to prominence on like a Ireland or like Britain's Got Talent type show. And the prize was to get the lead role in like Phantom of the Opera or something like mm. Andrew Lloyd Webber's like Phantom of the Opera. Um, and I don't think she won, but I think she was like one of the like fan favorites. Um, oh, cool. I love those shows. Yeah. Like for a while, I was like so obsessed with like the British version of like the X Factor and America's Got Talent. And I would just like watch them on YouTube all day. So maybe I've seen her. You might have seen her, yeah. So if this is like the British version of like uh, from Justin to Kelly with Love, it's like a much darker, <gasps> much more darker. literary, like yeah. better written version of that. Yeah, wow. like the, the young guy, the the male character in this, he's originally from South Africa, but he's like really big in England. He's like more like singer-songwriter, like indie type. Okay, but... cool. And they both have a really good chemistry in the they movie. It's very convincing. Chemistry. Yeah. <sighs> Beast. Like I'd be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if he really was a serial killer, you know, like, or something. Like that's what he's accused of in this, uh, and just like, oh, so creepy, so creepy. What else you got, Brittany? Nancy. Nancy. <laughs> Nancy. Which Whoops. just popped up on Canopy. We just watched that recently. I love that cartoon. <laughs> oh yeah, Sluggo is lit. Sluggo's <laughs> <Like>, cool. <laughs> so um, yeah, that's how I watched it too. It was on Canopy. And I love, like, thrillers and everything. And that was, like, on every time, like, I looked at the list of, like, what are some, like, cool thrillers to watch that are available on Canopy. This kept popping up. It's, like, a sad mystery, I guess, that really isn't a mystery. It's just a very, very sad movie. And it stars Andrea... Riseborough. Riseborough. I cannot pronounce that last name. Who had a great year last year. Yeah. She was Mandy of Mandy. She was also in The Death of Stalin. Mm-hmm. And Cece and I also watched her in Oblivion and Never Let Me Go last year, oh, which were yeah. both like really good. And she does not look anything like herself in any of those movies. Like yeah. there's like four different people. I think she never looks like herself to the point where an article came out, like a profile of her came out mm-hmm. this past year. They're called like Andrea Riseborough wants you to recognize her now, <laughs> like because she always is a chameleon and everything. But yeah. she like now wants to be known by her name. Like she wants people to stop like thinking of her as a character actress and like think of her as a lead, which kind of fits her character her in Nancy, right? Like yeah. in Nancy, yes. she is a person who changes personalities. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in Nancy, her oh God, she is just this very like depressed 
sad person whose like mom is dying and her mom's Anne Dowd, oh, Aunt yeah. Lydia, who was also in Hereditary. Yes, yeah, a good year for Anne Dowd too. <laughs> so um, there's she's watching the new like she she makes up lies like she's a compulsive liar and I think just to like she does it to make her life exciting because her life is so boring and sad where she basically like fakes a pregnancy. And she also fakes a uh, vacation in North Korea. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Why would you do that? It's like pointless grifts. Just weird shit. And she, like, gets, like, a fan um, online who thinks she's pregnant. And it's John Leguizamo. And he eventually finds out she's not. So she's kind of, like, out of all of her lies. And she needs to think of something else to keep her occupied. And she's watching the news. And there's, um like, a what you call it like an unsolved mysteries kind of special it talks about this girl that was kidnapped like 30 or so years ago and her parents are talking about like you know what it was like to like lose her and one of those parents is steve buscemi who was looking like a smoking zaddy <laughs> in this movie um art professor zaddy yes yeah. <laughs> So she looks at, she kind of looks like the girl in the picture. Like, they're like, this is what she would look like now. And it kind of looks like her. She has, like, these really sad, deep-set eyes. Yeah, there's a <laughs> Probably because she's kidnapped. Great shot where she cuts the, like, printout of the age progression yes. uh, in half and, like, mirrors it to her face. And it's the movie cover. Yeah, and it looks a lot like her. It looks just like her, yeah. but with blonde hair. So she her hair's obviously bottle like dyed. It's so bad. I'm she, pretty sure it's a terrible wig. It looks like Sia's wig. It looks like her <laughs> hair's about to like spin like a helicopter blade and just fly off her head at any moment. Like it's not attached to her scalp. <laughs> and it's very like shardy. Like it looks like it just got cut with a knife. Yeah, <laughs> Which, not scissors. I don't. I don't know how to be hard. How hard to be on the wig? Because like some people who never bathe have that like broom. Like, mm-hmm. stiff hair like that. Mine would be like that. But it looks fake as fuck on her. I don't know. Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the wig was very distracting in the movie. So, the thing that pissed everyone off the most in 2018 was Nancy's wig. Yeah. <laughs> or just <laughs> me. I don't things. know. <laughs> no, it was really weird. I'm like, that's just a strange, strange decision. Yeah. But it made her look really crazy and really sad. Yeah. So, maybe that's why. So, yeah. After she sees that this, you know, photo could pass for her... It's almost like she starts to make herself believe that it could be her. And she has a cat and she puts her cat in this like little carrier case and like just takes off to find these people who would be her parents. I thought that was interesting because this cat was so well behaved where (laughs) I put my cat in his like little crate to go to the vet and he meows the whole time and hisses. So that was really interesting. There was a time I tried to escape uh, <laughs> New Orleans for a hurricane evacuation, mm-hmm. and I had my cat in my car with me, and we sat in traffic in the heat for a Ooh. minute, and he just shat his like carrier. <laughs> so I had to turn around and go home and bathe him, and like wait it out, and then go back on the road. So, oh my god! Yeah, yeah like her cat was extremely well. <laughs> yeah, traveling with it. cats is so hard, but yeah, you know, Nancy's got everything at this point. So she goes over and. The mother is very, like, open to the idea that this really is her daughter. Um, and Steve Buscemi, who's the father, is just, like, not buying it. Um, and it kind of gets creepy to where she believes it more and, like, kind of starts talking about, like, experiences that she's remembered and how, like, she doesn't think her mother was her mother. And they do, like, a DNA test. And it's revealed. I mean, it's obvious that she's not the daughter. You never um, see that, though. 
-hmm. like her mom just or the woman who might be her mom just gets a phone call and then starts crying and you never like right you never say but it's like assumed but you're right It it might be the real thing or not I think the the hook of it is like we have no idea who this person is. Like yeah. she's such a compulsive liar, and the points of the lie are not to get one over on people. It's more like she doesn't get a lot of emotional connection at home, right? So she seeks out these connections with strangers in these ways that require like a minor grift. But she's not like milking them for money or anything. She's milking them for like a human Attention. connection. Yeah, it's really sad. So you don't like hate her for lying. You're like, oh, like yeah. just pretend she's your daughter and, and hang out with her, please. It <laughs> seems like she convinces herself of the lie. Yeah, she seems. I, I fully bought that she believed it. That yeah. she never was trying to like fake out these people. That she truly believed that she was probably their kid because like. Her, she didn't have a birth certificate. Like, that right. was, like, a real thing, is she doesn't have a birth certificate. Like, and she didn't know that she was, like, adopted until, like, later in life. And her mom adopted her from, like, cousins, which is, like, weird and fucked up. Like, they yeah. just had this extra kid laying around. <laughs> Give me that kid. Like. That's a very, like, um, impoverished style of, like, childbearing, though. Yeah, you just, yeah. like, pick up an extra kid sometimes. Yeah. Oh my god. But yeah, it's a really grim character study of this like character who you never know what their deal is. And yeah. even when it's revealed like what she's lying about and what she doesn't know that she's lying about, like you still don't know who she is by the end of the movie. Right. Which is why I think it fits like Andrea Riseborough's character in real life too, where like I have watched five <laughs> movies with her in the past year that I liked her in each one and I still don't feel like I know who she is. Right. It's just like an enigma. Right. I know who Olivia Coleman is. <laughs> like, after seeing the Queen, like, she's not that dopey, but she still is, like, this, like, cute, sweet, awkward person sometimes. Like, yeah, when she life. was promoting like, the favorite on uh, the Golden Globes, mm-hmm. she was the same kind of, like, befuddled, like, oh, goofball. Oh, 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 hi. <laughs> like, kind of a person. Whereas, like, Andrea Riseborough, I have no clue who she is in yeah. real life. It's. Just, I guess, like, it's a sad movie, but it didn't make me sad. It's got some of that Lifetime movie energy you were talking mm-hmm. about with uh, A Simple Favor as well. It's got, like, a very Lifetime plot, even though totally. it's, like, an art film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It reminded me of a lot of this one Lifetime movie with different subject matter, but um, it had Stockard Channing, her and her lifetime husband. favorite. Her and her husband <laughs> are trying to have kids, and they can't, so they want to, like, adopt a baby from this extremely impoverished couple who already mm-hmm. have, like, seven kids. And, like... It's kind of about like the like messiness of not knowing who you are really like Ugh. and like like having that power over other people and uh so like Stalker Channing like desperately wants this baby and like the people are kind of manipulating her and using her and like getting more and more money out of her and then she finds out that there might be something wrong with the baby and so she decides not to keep it like oh god like they're like oh they back out of the deal kind of a thing so then the other people don't want the baby either and so the baby just like ends up in the hospital like and like nobody wants the baby at the end she's like fucked up there's a lot of like weird lifetime movies about like either people doing like what soccer channing's doing or people who just like steal kids from hospitals yeah like there's a good one that i love called like maternal instincts with delta burke where she like gets in a situation where it's like you either die or the baby dies or something like that and her husband makes the choice and is like fuck i want my wife to live (laughs) screw this kid and then she gets mad and she tries to steal a baby but i think the difference between nancy and those movies is like Uh in nancy there's like this 
you know, very indie festival, like art mm-hmm. movie sheen to and it. And everything's like in the snow. It's all gray and snowy. Yeah. The uh, guy who did the music um, works with Jonathan Glazer a lot, who did like Birth and Under the Skin and stuff like that. Mm. So this looks really eerie soundtrack. And yeah. It's like really well made, besides the wig maybe, uh, where <laughs> like, yeah, it feels like a, like a character performance that you would see at like a, you know. At the New Orleans Film Festival yeah. or something. Uh, it's good. It's it a good little good. gem, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I was glad I, I happened upon it and watched it, enjoyed it. And apparently, like, this wig is iconic. <laughs> Iconically awful. I'm obsessed yeah. with it. <laughs> I don't know if everyone else is. It looks like whenever um, I had this Barbie that I, like, cut her bangs and her hair, and then I took, like, a permanent marker and colored her hair black, and that's who That she sounds is. accurate, yeah. 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 It's she like all the scene room. kids who, like, remember the scene kids in the aughts, early aughts, who, like, dyed their hair like pitch black all the time and so it kind of got that straw look to yeah, it yeah like it's really coarse it's like, like really coarse this, and like just go... and they purposely were cutting in kind of a spiky manner using like razor blades and stuff yeah. and it just kind of looks like that but it looks so lank and out of place on her i ruined my hair because of that shit <laughs> like I, I box bleached it and then tried to use manic panic oh you fried it and it was fried but it, it was like very stiff like hers like there was mm-hmm. this one like piece of fried hair that just never went away and it took about like 11 years for it to grow out jesus uh-huh it was oh, so no. weird it was and it was so embarrassing and it was just like this was, like matted piece of fried hair that was before self-care you know yeah <laughs> yeah before, it's before care. like i would run errands with a uh shower cap with like conditioner with like a turban wrapped over it so i could go run groceries but still take care of my hair that's before the jenners right. and the kardashians and the goops like God. taught us how to take care of ourselves you know yeah. <laughs> Thanks, before <guys>. fire festival <laughs> yes um, but yeah, I like Nancy a lot, but there's not really much like, I'm just like, what else can I say? There's not much to say about it. It just makes you feel a certain way when you watch it. And it's very quiet and like slow, mm-hmm. but it's not boring. Yeah. Yeah. It's creepy and sad and mm-hmm. it's got a great central performance from Andrea Riseborough, who usually plays like side characters in movies where like, you really like seeing her. She but- had like a Nancy, I'm sorry, a Mandy personality in here where she was just very quiet and like big eyed. But there's way more of her here. Yes, yeah. she talks more. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. But yeah, um, well, what's another one of, of yours, Brandon? So <laughs> the last one is another Netflix film, As If They Need the Promotion. <laughs> it's directed by Sandy Tan, who is from mm-hmm. Singapore. It's a mm. film called Shirkers. She, in the 90s, was this, like, Singapore zinester. So she, like, made a bunch of, like, punk zines and, like, film blog type stuff before blogs existed where she would like make lists of like her favorite movies of the year and like pester local indie theaters to play like the new Soderbergh picture or something, you know, like trying to like bring indie nineties film culture to Singapore where it really didn't exist. Yeah. And it was also like a heavy, heavily censored society at that point. So like there, like you couldn't show a lot of these films. There was a ban on bubble gum. So like the kids would like all chew gum to like piss off the like Singapore government. who was like trying to control their lives, you know? Yeah. So a part of that is her being this like really bratty kid who, you know, is trying to be a tastemaker and like, you know, that comes with a lot of negativity, too, where it's like, oh, the mainstream movies that actually come here, those are bullshit. I like the real art, you know? I watch David Lynch. I watch French films. Yeah. I'm cultured. <laughs> so she, and yeah, so she's not trying to be like this tastemaker among these like young kind of punky kids in Singapore. And the way that she manifests this energy is in this film project that was like doomed from the start. And it's called The Shirkers. Uh, and she was trying to make this film on, you know, actual like real to real 
celluloid. I think it was a 16 millimeter. Yeah, she was using 16 millimeter. And it's this really like color saturated, beautiful road trip movie that she made um, with her friends and with this one producer who ended up being the director of the film. His name is George Cardona. Or I don't know how to pronounce that. Yeah, it might be Jorge Cardona. So he is this mysterious man who does not like to give away his origins, but he's actually from South America, even though he says he's from New Orleans. Um, And he teaches film classes in Singapore. And they use his expertise in making films to film this like road trip movie among them and their friends. And he works with them for like an entire year or two, getting all the footage necessary to make the film and then disappears with it and leaves them with nothing. So Sandy Tan, who's the director of the documentary, goes on a quest to recover the footage and to investigate who this guy was that ripped them off and absconded with the footage. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of like the basis of it. It's like this mystery of like who this guy is, why would he lead along these like teenagers and like build up their like filmmaking dreams only to disappear with the footage. Yeah, and then not even to release it himself. No. Like the film was never released. He didn't steal it so that he could profit off of it. He just stole it. What do you mean? And like this film is set you know, 30, 40 years later, like she had to go Jeez. about the rest of her life not knowing what happened to her footage, like had to like pick a new career and like start over as an adult and like <sighs> figure out what else she's going to do with her life. It derailed her creative path as a kid. Yeah, pretty much. Um, like she would have been a filmmaker otherwise, but this happened. And the interesting thing is that after he dies, the wife, like his widow, um, sends her the footage that he had been hoarding and doing nothing with. She doesn't have the uh, sound recordings of it. So all she has is the visuals. And there's a lot of like beautiful footage from the Shirkers film that she had not thought about in the 20 or 30 years since Aww. the last time she had seen it. It's like a time capsule or something. Yeah, yeah but it's also like, like a traumatic event it's as well. Yeah, like, she lost her like first child, essentially, is like kind of the way it's framed. Like yeah. She would have continued making film, but then it was taken from her and it never occurred to her to keep going after that. She was oh. just done with making film, and so she now has to watch all this footage that's really good. She probably would have been a really good filmmaker had she kept doing it. So... Like, on a base level, the movie has a really important, like, hook. Like, a good, like, mystery. Like, who is this guy? Why would he do this? And basically, he's just a nobody who's trying to create this, like, legend around him. Is That that was, like, yeah. what he did it for? Right. Yeah. He went to New weird. Orleans uh, for a while mm-hmm. and filmed this uh, really cheap slasher here called The Last Slumber Party. Um, I'm going to post a review of that soon. but Because uh, it's on YouTube as well. Cool. Uh, but he did the same thing with them. Like, he disappeared with, like, a reel of the footage, and they had to complete the film without it. Wow. Um, so it's pretty short. <laughs> he also lies about being the inspiration for James Spader's character in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, the Jesus Soderbergh Christ. film, uh, just to, like, have some sort of, like, self-importance. Is he still alive, this guy? No, no he, he's dead. He died because uh, the, the widow The widow gave. passed along the footage. Yeah. Because yeah. he, wouldn't, he wouldn't release the footage otherwise. Oh, okay. You're, yeah. yeah. Wow. I think y'all said that, and I, like, Totally forgot about it. So, yeah, the whole story of, like, her recovering the footage from Circus and, like, this, like, Singapore art scene where, like, these punk kids are making this, like, bratty road trip movie, that's all very interesting. But what really hooked me for the film is, like, Sandy Tan uses this opportunity to examine her own personality, and the conclusion she comes to over and over again is, like, I am an asshole. Like, my friends invested all this energy in me uh, and allowed me to like command their summer and their free time to work on this DIY art project. They kept raising red flags. Like this guy is very weird. We should not be like 
resting on him to like get this project completed. Wow. Uh, and I kept pushing them and pushing their concerns aside. And every time she examines old footage of her interacting with her friends, she keeps finding these instances where her personality, that's like this tastemaker, zinester, like, you know, DIY art project, like, Drive. chauvinist in a lot of ways she's kind of a chauvinist like the things she likes are the best things yeah so like she like bulldozes everyone and yeah she keeps coming to this like realization like i'm a bully and i keep ruining these friendships because i have this like very a-type personality that like overwhelms other people and like absorbs their labor and their energy and sucks them dry and what do i have to show for it this film with like no sound like yeah. that was lost for decades it can't be completed decades. like now the way it is like the film is useless like you have all this beautiful film stock that was extraordinarily well preserved oh it's beautiful but there's no soundtrack to it so you can't like redub it i mean i guess you could sit there and try and redub it but what would be the point like to and recreate it. She starts to recognize like some creative decisions she made to put herself front and center. Like I want to star in the movie and I want to do the dialogue and like take over more and more of the project. Like I was ruining the chances of the picture actually being good as well. Like it actually never would have been as good as it could have been because I kept forcing myself on the project. Um, and I really like identified with so much of this movie. Like the idea that, these like DIY art project time sucks, like kind of like this website and this podcast we're doing right now. Like you, you <laughs> put all this like money losing energy into this project that's like going nowhere and like sucking other people's times. Thank you for being here, by the way. Oh, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> uh, and then also like just the literal fact that the uh, movie moves from Singapore in the 90s to mid-city New Orleans in the 2010s. Like there's a lot of footage of the is around the corner from this house. That's so crazy. It felt like it was coming closer and closer to where we're at right now. And, you know, just the mystery of who this George Cardona guy is and this, like, slasher he filmed in Metairie was really interesting. So the movie just, like, really hit me personally. (laughs) And then on top of that, you have this, like, self-portrait of this person realizing that they're an asshole and a bully and they, like, ruin their friendships. It's a very anti-auteur movie. For sure. Like, she learns, oh, the auteur style of filmmaking is a fucked up way to make movies. And if you're not really really good and experienced in making movies you always end up making a bad movie if you use the auteur style had she just collaborated with her friends and done this you know that like diy style she could have made the film and released it but she had to have like the best director and she had to star in it and she had to do all this it had to be her vision all the time and that ruined it in a lot of ways like he wouldn't have been as involved in the movie had she like actually collaborated with her friends and the two friends that she collaborated with as much as she did, one of them is like a film professor at NYU now. And the other one actually went on to make Singapore's like nineties indie films that she never got to achieve because she was like so controlling. So it's like everyone can watch it and all learn a lesson at her expense. Yeah. And (laughs) well, and it also has some of that lifetime thriller mystery aspect to it where it's like, who is this man? I, um, I didn't know that's what Shirkers was about. Like it always shows up on like Netflix, like, you know, things that people are watching now like list or whatever i thought it was like a critters movie like because it sounds like shirkers like oh it must be some kind of weird alien creature <laughs> i didn't know it was about yeah that. that title is very like strange and evocative it sounds like a horror movie title yeah shirkers 
<laughs> and George Cardona kind of is a horror villain. So, yeah, but yeah. it sounds kind of spooky. And I think I think that was the title was like the term the Singaporean government had for all these young punks. Oh. They were like, oh, they're shirking their their familial duties. They're not listening to their parents. <laughs> they're not. They're going to college. Or they're not settling down and having families. And they're like, yeah, we're fucking shirkers. Just like all the seventies punks, you know, from England, Sweet. you know, called themselves, you know, like the slits and like other like undesirable terms for themselves. Yeah. yeah. Um, they were kind of doing that same thing. Sweet. But yeah, I saw a lot of myself in this movie, just like in the uh, like DIY art project time suck of it. Like yeah. pouring all your energy and stubborn like determination into this thing that doesn't work out. But it's like, I don't know, but it's fun and it keeps you like up to date with like what's going on too. Like there's yeah. positives to it. For sure. And I get a lot out of it. But <laughs> Don't I think stop because of shirkers. Right. But I, I think like the most negative end of it, like if you push that to its extreme and like its most delusional point, that's what this film represents. Like mm-hmm. this is like the darker side of like these like collaborative Whoa. efforts. When you start taking the collaboration out of it and you're like issuing orders instead of like, you know, working with people. Yeah. Sometimes one person has to like take charge of a huge sprawling project yeah. because if you make a movie by you know, a committee, it can get very messy. Mm-hmm. And so you need one person to like set the tone. But when you're making a small movie and you're like trying to have that level of dictatorship over it, it's ridiculous to want to own something so small, you know, like you don't need to, it's not that important. Like you don't need it to be perfect. Like, and also right. the tendency with these documentaries where you're like looking back at these old bands or these old art projects that didn't get completed. The tendency has been like, this would have been the greatest thing ever had this yeah. guy had not screwed us over. Hodorowski's Dune. Right. Like, or uh, or the band, band called Death. The band called Death was my next example, yeah. <laughs> so this one is a little different because it has this like, self-awareness where it's like, I could have made this beautiful project, but instead I was already ruining it before this guy even stepped in. And like my own asshole-ish behavior like, derailed this project from the start. And even if Shirkers had come out in the 90s, mm-hmm. This documentary is almost like a better project than that ever could have been because uh, it has this really clear-eyed, self-aware like reflection on like the past and what collaboration means in filmmaking and mm-hmm. what these like DIY zine making like punk art projects even mean. You know, like it's all about working with your friends and like creating something together. And when you start like polluting that with like dictatorship type you know, creative control. It's, it's a, it's a whole different kind of polluted product. Uh, and I, she's like a really good ethos about that now that she realized what she was doing. Right. So it's kind of like Jorge wasn't like, he was a bad guy, but it was kind of like, he was just a piece of like the shittiness going on with Shirkers. Right. Like he is a terrible person, yeah. but he didn't even need to be involved. She was the one that pulled them in and insisted yeah. that he be involved. Ugh. So, like, he's just an extension of her own self-sabotage. Everyone needs to get rid of the Jorge in their life. Exactly. (laughs) Throw him out. So, yeah. (laughs) Movie's really good as, like, a, you know, art project document. And it's also good as, like, a mystery thriller about who this, like, weird-ass sociopath is who ripped off these, like, Singapore girls in the 90s. And it's also just, like, this really uh, hard-hitting self-reflection on, like, your own worst, like, self-indulgent tendencies. Mm -hmm. So it's, and it's just beautiful too. Like all the old footage of the 60 millimeter stuff they filmed in the nineties is just gorgeous to look at. That's cool. It's so interesting that something from like Singapore would like have some kind of relation to something here like that too. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That was very unexpected. Yeah. Wow. It was funny how scattered all those kids ended up because Mm -hmm. they're all just, you know, upper middle-class Singapore teens 
And she writes, she's a writer now, lives here in the U.S. You know, one of her collaborators teaches at NYU. The other one actually works in film. So, like, they're all kind of scattered around the world now. Yeah. Which, it's always funny, like, which group of friends becomes, like, successful and ends up, like, living around the world. Like, you're a highly localized group of kids from this one town in Singapore, and now you're living all around the world. Holy shit. Uh, it's like, you know, like, every once in a while, like, you see, like, a class of, like, kids from New Jersey, and, like, three of them become prominent rappers, and, like, one <laughs> does, you know, Hamilton. You know, whatever. Uh, you know, yeah, I don't think it's from New Jersey. I think it's from New York. But, you know, that happens sometimes. Like, kids who, like, know each other and, like, work in the same circles, like, all end up, like, becoming successful or whatever. So I thought it was kind of interesting, too. Yeah. <sighs> and this is, like, her return Man. to filmmaking while her friends, like, actually continued on and fulfilled the dream she thought she had in the first place. So it sounds like if I were to watch this, it would be, like, I have to be in, like, a mood for some self-reflection. <laughs> I think so, but it's also just like fascinating because there's yeah. a, a sociopath in the center of it. I didn't know that there was a a metery slumber party slasher. That's so weird. <laughs> that review will be coming up on Swamplex soon. Awesome. I I wrote it a little while back, and I've been um, kind of slow on the backlog because I've been for this month hosting mm-hmm. our best movies of the year yeah. lists. Which wow. I think I can announce now because it'll be coming out soon. Yeah. Uh, when we did the podcast episode, our favorite movie of the year was Mandy. Uh, and the website's, you know, consensus pick for everybody was Annihilation. So that was yeah. Softlux's movie of the year. So it would be like Annihilation, then probably second would be Mandy. Exactly, like, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it was fun to squeeze in some more honorable mentions today. Uh, thank y'all for yeah. allowing me to bully you into this zine oh, project. you're welcome. <laughs> I love you. You shirker. Yeah, I feel like a shirker right now. <laughs> And uh, we'll start getting back into more regular episodes in the next couple weeks. Actually, I think another the next one's going to be another group one with uh, Brittany, me, and James. Yeah. But after that, we'll be normal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, hopefully we'll have another good movie of the year in 2019. Hell yeah. It's already good with Glass and that escape, escape room, room movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's enough movie recommendations Ooh. for one day. Yeah. That's a lot. I have a lot to watch. Wow. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Goodbye. Bye.